4: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie.
5: Wednesday morning, the tenth of May. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till eleven a.m. This is Michael Reid on LMFM.
1: On behalf of the government, I want to acknowledge that we are facing a cost of living crisis. Uh, We've seen inflation reach very high levels in the last year or so. Uh, Thankfully, inflation is now slowing down, but that's not the same as prices falling. Uh, Prices remain very high. Uh, and A lot of people and a lot of families are struggling with those bills, uh, and everyone in government understands that. The
5: Taoiseach, Leo Vratker, acknowledging how so many people are struggling to cope with the cost of living, the cost of housing, energy and groceries are crippling so many people. Today, Minister Neil Richmond convenes a meeting of the Retail Forum in the hope of bringing down the cost of your messages.
1: Uh, and it's going to meet with producers like farmers the day after, and he'll be passing on a very clear message from government. Um, when input prices like energy costs went up, retailers increased their prices. That's understandable. Your, in, your input costs go up, you have to pass on some of that increase to your customers. But when input costs go down, we expect you to pass on those reductions to, to your customers. And we're making that very clear Uh, to to the retailers, to the big supermarkets, to the shops, and also to the energy and gas companies. Um, You put prices up when your costs went up. Now your costs are coming down we expect you to bring down prices. And we're starting to see a bit of that, uh, but not enough, not enough of that.
5: There is no doubt there are many problems and prices are not falling quickly enough, especially if you consider that a quarter of gas customers are in arrears. That's 160,399 households who have missed at least one gas bill. 199,790 electricity customers are also in arrears. On the other hand, no. Irish government has ever been as flush. The biggest question the government faces right now is what will it do with an unexpected €65 billion euro it will collect in windfall taxes over the next few years? Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks for joining us. €65 billion euro is certainly a lot of money, but when you compare that quandary of how to spend that money with how many people are struggling, it's a tale of two cities, isn't it?
2: I suppose it is. Look, sixty five billion is this the sort of notional figure that has been put out there for the extra corporation tax take that is is going to be had over the next couple of years and this sort of estimated surplus that the government may have all things going well. To spend over the next while, and we know last year alone there was 12 billion euro there or thereabouts in sort of what was unexpected corporation tax take. Our, our corporation tax take was a record 22.4 billion, and about half of that, the, the Department of Finance recommends is sort of you know once off or, or couldn't be relied on. A little bit like. You Imagine it like winning the lottery, you know, you, you might mm. increase your budget to spend a, a million euro that year, but you couldn't do it every year because you're not guaranteed uh, that it will come back. And the big debate now and the big debate that's been happening in politics is what to do with that money. Michael McGrath brought proposals to Cabinet yesterday and is going to outline in a bit more detail today what they are. But essentially, it's looking at setting up a, a sovereign wealth fund and what is that well it's basically like a big government investment account so at the moment we know that they've got six billion euro in the rainy day fund that fund is capped at eight billion euro legally by the legislation that went through And so now Michael McGrath is wondering, like an awful lot of people are wondering, I suppose, you know, should you have that money just sitting in a no interest bank account effectively, Mm. or could you invest it? And other countries have gone down this route. Norway did it most successfully in the 90s when they set one up to use the excess profits from oil and gas exploration to invest in a fund. And now... That fund is, is one of the biggest investors in the world. It's worth 1.2 uh, trillion euro. And it, 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 I saw a remarkable stat, stat during the week that 1.5% of all shares owned in the world are owned by this one fund owned by Norway. It's wow. very strict... Mm. Um, rules on how much the politicians can take out of that then to spend during the good times but obviously it provides a, or the bad times rather, but obviously it provides an awful lot of money to the state and so that's mm. what Michael McGrath is looking at but obviously that's weighed against opposition demands and indeed demands from people in the public saying well what about our housing sector what about the health sector what about all these other problems that we have at the moment you know for some people as, as Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly put it yesterday for some people it's already lashing never mind your rainy day
5: Okay what about the next election uh, politicians must be tempted to think uh, about what this might do uh, in, in terms of gaining popularity. If they were to split the 65 billion euro between all of us, we'd all get 13,000 euro each. Uh, that, that would buy an election, wouldn't it? Yeah,
2: but uh, well, that probably also illustrates, like, how much of a problem, how, how far this money doesn't go? You know, yeah. you talk mm. about 65 billion, then if you actually split up between all of us, it, it's only 13 grand each, which would be a lovely little bonus. I say only 13 grand, God, I'd love it in the back pocket. But at the same time, there are definitely better ways that you can spend that money. And so I suppose the debate really, it, uh, there are obviously politicians who would love it. But mm. Yeah, please fund every project that I've ever wanted and let's win this next election, have a bumper, maybe even bumper budget next year and then uh, go to the polls. But in fairness to Michael McGrath, I think he is looking more Long term, he's described it as the opportunity of of a lifetime or of a generation for the government to do something genuinely transformational with money that it didn't think that that it, it had. And then you were also looking to the future. And actually, there was a fund quite similar to this set up by Charlie McCreevy of all people back in the early 2000s, the National Pension Reserve Fund, which was raided several times during uh, during the bust. But you could make a good argument that had we not had that fund put aside, things would have been even worse when it comes to our national debt. There are people calling for this money to be used to pay down that national debt because it is getting, particularly as interest rates rise, it's not only mortgage holders who are going to face difficulty with that, it's the government who is issuing their debt because when that comes due in whatever, you know, five, ten years, however long the bonds are, uh, they will have to pay extra interest on it. And then there's other people, and you know, speaking to politicians yesterday, quite a few of them who were on, you, you would consider the more reasoned politicians if if you like, some of the Social Democrats, also Labour's finance spokesperson at uh, Jed Nash, of your mm. parish, saying that some, it should be split. that obviously we need to set up some sort of a contingency fund, a rainy day fund, maybe an investment fund, like Michael McGrath saying, mm. but also there are very pressing needs, be that emergency accommodation. I think Roshan Shorthall was calling for the government to buy one of the private hospitals in order to right. create more capacity mm. in the public system. So you can see already there's a huge debate and there are so many things that you could want to do, but to go back to the original point... Yeah. This money, even though it sounds huge, goes yep. uh, mm. so far.
5: Yeah, and I suppose you'd often hear of people uh, who would inherit a a lot of money or win the lottery or something like that, but come into an awful lot of money and they'd be advised not to buy their house out, but to continue with a mortgage because it can be more beneficial over the long run. Uh, And there's many ways of looking at uh, this money. Uh, Charlie McCreevy, the finance minister back in the 90s, Champagne Charlie, used to say, when I have it, I spend it. Uh, And there is an argument to spend it uh, in a way that... That you're not committed to coming up with that money every year, to spend it on housing or, or whatever the case may be. But if you blow all of that money, what do you do if that rainy day comes along? We've learned in very recent times that rainy days do happen. And the amount of money that we spent on COVID, for example.
2: Yeah, 100%. And like, so, for example, it would be very easy. A lot of the surface, for example, last year was spent on uh, cost of living sports and a lot of it over the last couple of years was spent on one-off COVID sports and you could like very credibly could make the argument that they were 100% needed but now if there were a recession to hit tomorrow they're, they're gone they're spent and there are people who are still in difficulty either with their own work or businesses restaurants etc uh, who do, you know don't have money you can't obviously do something like Uh, raise social welfare rates or cut taxes with the money because you don't know if they're going to have it next year and then when that money dries up in a few years' time because of international corporation tax changes, suddenly you have to find this money and defund some other services to to keep um, on the tax rates there or the tax cuts that you've put in. So it comes down to, I suppose, do, do you pick... Mm. a big project. Do you pick a Metro North or do you pick, you know, the uh, build a, building a wind farm or bring us into, the, you know, something like that. I heard someone talking about the, the 21st century of Crusher. If you could uh, take something that was this generational scheme uh, that could really make a difference for us in the future, broadband plan, whatever it is to roll it out massively. Mm. Housing is obviously the one that comes to mind immediately. The only little, I suppose, caveat or fear i would have with that is that I, I think in some ways it's not necessarily a money problem you can see that the department of housing isn't even able to spend its current budget and there are definitely constraints when it comes to the amount of people that are, are in the construction sector that are actually able to build houses so even if you push let's say you said right we're, we're going to fix housing once and for all here's another 10 billion euro You can't just magic up the the builders, you can't magic magic up the tradespeople overnight to actually go and put those into place. So I wonder, will the government shift a little bit away from that? But you do also have to have your contingency. Now, there's already Mm. six billion in the contingency. It's not like the kitty is completely and utterly empty. But as we've seen, if there is another recession, and God, hope, if there is, we all hope it won't be anything like two thousand and eight. Six billion was a, a drop yep, in the water yeah.
5: then. Well, I, I, I'm not so bad with millions. I'll never see millions, but I do kind of have a handle on it. When it goes into the billions, I find it very difficult to comprehend <laughs> it. It, it. It's so much money, though. Uh, but to put it into context, uh, the government spends uh, just over a hundred billion every year, doesn't it? And that's on all of the hospitals and the wages for the nurses, the doctors, the guards, <laughs> the civil servants. Uh, to fix the roads and everything else that the government does uh, every year so we're talking about just over half that amount yes we did
2: pretty much, like you say, it's in around that, that billion euro figure. And to put it in another context because again, I don't like saying that a billion euro isn't all that much money, but when you get into how you divvy it up into these projects, like a billion euro is less than one children's hospital, if you want to put it into that context. Mm. But also there is such a cost when it comes to the government of just standing still. The Department of Finance estimates that because of uh, age-related changes in our in our demographics, more people being older, more people requiring care, mm. that mm. just to provide everything we're doing right now and not to make anything better will cost an extra eight to nine billion euro by the end of this decade Hmm. you also have to sort of uh, factor some of that in uh, some of that is offset by by wage growth and hopefully by the economy growing and all that sort of stuff Uh, but you do have to make this sort of backup plan And, and i think the most sense is probably made with some you know some big project be that on housing be that on energy be that on whatever it is that you only are going to get this money once what can you do that is going to make a genuine a genuine Hmm. generational difference
5: for people. Or, or, you know, as the old saying goes, uh, we could take that money and borrow twice as much and pay off our debts.
2: Well, you see, this money wouldn't even pay off our debts. Hmm. Our debt is about Hmm. €200 billion. So you could pay down, use some of it to pay down maybe the most pressing debt or the most high interest debt because that is the one that worries, you know, the way that this debt works is they they basically borrow money on a five or a ten year term and then agree to pay it back with a certain amount of interest and for the last ten years that interest has been almost zero because we've been in this low interest rate environment. Now obviously it's very, very different with the central banks across the world ramping it up. So when the money that they're borrowing right now comes to you. Suddenly, if you've borrowed 100 million, you have to pay back 105 million or whatever it happens to be. And that is when things become a lot more difficult. So, if you pay down maybe some of the, the worst debt, if you like, but there is just, I don't think there is any way politically the government doesn't get away with spending some of this money because debt is not something that, as yeah. much as they say it's 44,000 for every single person in Ireland, You know, it's not something you see every day. It's not something that affects you paying your your mortgage, the national debt. You want to know something is going to be done for you now either to help with housing or with the cost of living crisis or something that you can actually see and feel and I think if they don't do that politically things will be very very
6: difficult.
5: Sean we leave it there and thanks indeed for joining us uh, this morning that's our political correspondent Sean DeFoe Michael,
3: Michael Reed on LMFM
5: Citizens Assembly on drugs use will meet once again uh, this weekend. Uh, some politicians would have you believe uh, that recommendations it ultimately makes to the government could be to decriminalize or legalise some or all of the drugs that are currently illegal for sale or purchase in this country. Let's speak to the Chair of the Assembly, Paul Reid, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Paul Reid, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I think that's one of the options, but you have many options in terms of what recommendations you believe are appropriate to give to the government. But can you begin uh, by explaining how... That could be one of the options, given that your objective is to make recommendations that would significantly reduce the harmful impacts of drugs.
7: Good morning, Michael. Yeah, and I suppose the parameters in which we can make recommendations back have been set by the terms of reference that have been agreed by the Oireachtas and handed down to the Assembly. And ultimately, the key target is how do you reduce harm from illicit drugs, But in that context, uh, we can make recommendations back on three key areas, uh, legislation, uh, policy, and indeed operational issues, which in essence are services. And in doing so, we will look at international best practice. We will particularly look at something I'm very anxious about is the lived experiences of people. Uh, we look for the implications for the health, education, justice systems, criminal justice in terms of recommendations. But there are a few broad areas, some of which you've touched on. So the issue of legislation, legalisation, regulation, decriminalisation, the whole issue around language and stigma, and particular focus on marginalised communities because we know while drugs is pervasive all across society, it particularly hurts uh, some communities, particularly communities of higher social deprivation
5: for many reasons, not just drugs. OK, there's 99 members of the Assembly and yourself, the 100th member, but uh, you as an independent and impartial chair uh, is uh, the only member who can't share their views at this stage. I'm sure you have views uh, on drug use and where we go from here. Uh, There are many options and, of course, maintaining the status quo is one of those.
7: Oh, yes, and there are many options and many views, and in fairness to the 99 members too, I'm sure they all come to the Assembly process with some uh, views already. Uh, However, what we have seen from the first Assembly meeting happened last week Uh, People do listen to the evidence, people do listen to lived experiences, people do listen to international data and evidence and what other countries are doing. And already, you know, members have said to us, oh, their views might have changed already. Uh, They really want to get more information. So I think it will progress as we move through the six Assembly meetings, as we bring in that evidence, as we bring in, particularly this weekend, the lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And and finally, uh, just to make the point at the start, we also have a... public consultation process that's opened since last week and continues till the end of June and that's really an opportunity for everybody in society and all the stakeholders who have an interest in this area Mm. to make submissions uh, where we capture those diverse views bring those diverse views to the Assembly um, and that can be done in a written or video format and I Mm. encourage everybody to make submissions already we've had several hundred submissions in which is really good
5: Okay and the Assembly meetings are are very interesting there's an awful lot of interest in it and they can be watched online live or watched back on the internet uh, through the Citizens' Assembly website. As you say, you're taking submissions from members of the public if they've any thoughts uh, in any way uh, about where we go from here in terms of us as a society living with drugs because undoubtedly we'll continue to live with drugs. And you mentioned the lived experience of people and the lived experience of drugs use. is the theme of uh, this weekend's meeting of the Assembly.
7: Yeah, ultimately, I mean, if the if key goal is how do we reduce harm, I mean, harm can happen in many ways, physical, psychological. Um, criminal harm can happen to people then entering a criminal system, you know, where there may be viewed they don't need to. And there's a view that some people may not suffer any harm by use of some drugs. So we want to bring those mixed views in, and in doing so, we'll be hearing, uh, we'll be having panel discussions. This will be done very differently, not PowerPoint presentations, not people speaking from a podium, of individuals with their lived experiences, families who have had lived experiences and some of the really difficult issues they've had to work through, uh, local community groups, how they've organised uh, to support uh, individuals, support their communities, and indeed some frontline workers who deal with many of the issues and consequences um, of addiction and drug use in general. So again, mixed fields will be brought through, but I think we have a really compelling uh, set of people with very difficult lived experiences that they've gone through. That we be uh, given the opportunity to walk through the weekend, and along with that, just to bring some richness to it, will be the members will be visiting uh, two services who are key in, in terms of addiction, and that is Kool-Mayan, um in and Blanchardstown, uh, North Dublin, uh, which has a service for women and children's residential centre and residential centre, and also a men's residential services, and indeed also secondly Merchant's Key, uh, which deals with homelessness and people struggling with addiction and with homelessness and their families. Mm. Uh, so you know they're mm. getting a rich set of
5: information. Okay. So when you talk about uh, people's negative experience uh, of using drugs, will you hear from anybody who has had a positive experience?
7: Yeah, and that's the point I'm making about bringing diverse views in In those individuals. We will have some people who have a view and have experience of others perhaps who would have used some certain drugs, not have negative experiences. Uh, so we bring that view into the discussion also, and that will help inform the discussion uh, that we get a balanced view in, in the mix. But, you know, there are many forms of harm. Uh, some of the harms can be, you know, people, once they um get a criminal conviction. Uh, their lives can change fundamentally. Uh, can have a very detrimental effect on them and their communities. So, you know, we'll be exploring all that area too.
5: Okay, and when we talk about drugs, we're talking about a a really wide spectrum of substances, aren't we? Uh, I mean, you're the former head of uh, the HSE, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you've heard many times over the arguments for medicinal cannabis, for example. There's very strong arguments uh, that it it really helps people with chronic diseases uh, and that it should be available as a medicine. And on the other hand, then, you hear concerns from medics uh, who uh, are very worried about the psychological consequences and what happens after that. And you go from that medicinal cannabis to cannabis for recreational use through cocaine and all the problems we're seeing in our towns and cities because of cocaine and other very strong and highly addictive drugs like heroin and that.
7: Yeah, and there's a lot of what you just summarised there. I mean, if you take firstly, if you just take a couple of trends, what we are seeing, which is evidence-based by the Health Research Board, uh, if you take the period 2014 to 2020, uh, the types of drugs use by people are changing. So there's more use of cocaine, ecstasy and amphetamines. And secondly, there's a, quite a high rate of 15 to 24 year olds particularly men and young men. Uh, we've deteriorated rate of cocaine use in that age group, 15 to 34, in, Europe, in the EU. Uh, we've also seen an increase in polydrugs, which is the use of three or more drugs uh, together or at the same, by the same user. So, you know, we've seen those trends. We know there's a wide range of drugs. We know that the uh, issue of medical cannabis is still to face legally for certain uh, medical criteria. And you have summarised, uh, there's another view that says very strong psychological and psychosis issues emerge from use of cannabis. I'm very pleased that we have uh, support around the assembly process with an advisory group who have all of those diverse views um, that will bring to the table, will bring to me and will bring to the Assembly those uh, mixed views uh, in terms of which way we should go. Mm. Uh, but, but the advisory group themselves don't advocate for a particular reason, but they will make sure that we bring the, the right people who can discuss that information with the Assembly.
5: I think cocaine is probably the most problematic substance uh, that is being sold and consumed illegally in this country. Uh, the argument to decriminalise or legalize cocaine is that it would be cheaper in the first instance, which would stop people going into these huge debts that they're running up. And it would also stop the gangs collecting those debts, along with the violence and the intimidation that goes alongside that. And on the other side, uh, you're talking about the prospect of legitimizing a, a drug and a, a life of addiction or an end to life because of death from overdose.
7: Yeah, well, I mean, if you take cocaine, and we had some information from the First Assembly last month around the trends, some of which I've just summarised there, related to cocaine. We've also had uh, the high risk and dangers emerging related to crack cocaine, which in essence is a uh, solid form uh, of powder, uh, solid form of powder cocaine, which can be used and uh, smoked, uh, and it's probably the most addictive form of cocaine and a, uh, cocaine, and a very powerful and addictive drug. So, they're the kind of trends that are emerging that we have to be cognizant of. Secondly, in terms of any recommendations and the process to get there. We will also have to work through, there's always an unintended consequences of some recommendations, or indeed ultimately some policy changes that is a matter for the Rockers. But, you know, we could take some decisions here in Ireland uh, that might have unintended consequences here, but equally Mm. unintended consequences in other countries. So it, it is a difficult space to navigate. Um, but I'm confident in what I've seen already of the really thorough engagement of the Assembly members. And Assemblies in the past have demonstrated the public's capacity uh, to understand a very complex issue. We've seen it before in terms of the Eighth Amendment, and we've seen it before in terms of gender equality issues. And I've noticed that we'll see it with this Assembly too.
5: Okay. Um- In terms of the societal cost of uh, the use of drugs, it's probably true to say that if the state was to provide drugs in whatever way it it did, uh, so that it wasn't as costly uh, as it is now for users, uh, that there'd be far less crime uh, because you'd see a huge drop in In burglaries, So this is if you were to decriminalize it uh, and make it uh, available to people uh, and prostitution and other ways that people uh, uh, look to get the money to pay for their habit.
7: And that that is a view uh, that will be aired and has been aired publicly. I'm quite pleased that in parallel with the assembly process, we have some of that public debate happening as well, which is important for us. Um, But I I think there will be another view as well, uh, you know, ultimately that, you know, some communities suffer real harm. Uh, and it is those areas I've highlighted consistently around areas of higher social deprivation they suffer real harm in terms of the impact on the communities, they suffer real harm in stigmatisation, they suffer real harm in terms of criminalisation intimidation, so you know, it's not, unfortunately, on all of this issue, it's not a simple uh, process to find a solution in the middle no. that works. Mm. Uh,
5: no, and what, what comes complex. next, uh, I think, uh, is where my line of logic was going with that. Because if you were to legalise cocaine, uh, maybe it would stop the burglaries and you might get rid of the gangs for a time. Uh, but would something else replace cocaine? Yeah,
7: and ultimately, you know, if you look at international experiences, and that's what we will be doing with the Assembly, we'll be looking at other countries, um, South American countries, we'll be looking at European countries. Uh, Portugal is also one that is referenced. Uh, Portugal has a different kind of legal system, but they have moved and they've decriminalised. Uh, they haven't legalised um, certain drugs, but they've decriminalised and, and moved towards, I guess, a stronger health-led approach to dealing with the issue. Um and they have seen, there's early evidence, they have seen drug related crime come down. And uh, so, you know, it's still, it's still illegal. Uh, not criminalised and it is treated as an administrative offence and that's one hmm. area we'd be exploring as well as over other but
5: um, What about the economy? Will you be taking economic uh, considerations uh, I- into uh, account uh, because uh, I mean if you look at uh, the millions of dollars that are being raised in American states uh, where they've legalised cannabis and if you think about the amount of money that we spend policing the drugs problem in this country, there's a, a, a good argument economically uh, for legalising or decriminalising isn't there?
8: Yeah
7: and again and that, that's something that we will be bringing to and we've had um, Gareth and as one of the statutory agencies at the First Assembly and they set out their views very clearly um, you know in terms of their concerns around if you like legalising and the potential for you know Ireland becoming a kind of a tourist, des- tourist, des- tourist destination in terms of drug use um, you know so again Consequences, unintended consequences that may emerge will all have to be explored in terms of the economic issue. Yes, again, we'll be, you know, you can't beat evidence. So we will be searching to bring the best evidence of what countries have done and what has been some economic impacts, uh, what's been some social impacts, uh, what's been some community impacts of some Mm. of those changes in policy.
5: Okay, you're inviting submissions on this uh, to the Citizens' Assembly before the end of June. Uh, You'll be making your recommendations, I I take it, going into the autumn. What happens from there? Is there an obligation on the government to accept your recommendations, whatever they might be?
7: Well, ultimately, just summarize the process, we will work through six Assembly meetings between now and the end of October, uh, where all the information will be shared. After that and at the October meeting, the Assembly members will conclude by making some, by balloting on some recommendations. Ultimately, those recommendations become a report, which will present to the Oireachtas before the end of the year. The process after that is up to the policymakers. I mean, I've said to our Assembly members, uh, you know, we don't have authority but we have strong potential influence. Uh, ultimately, is it is the role of the elected, which it should be, the the, the role of the elected democ- democratic process, uh, who will make have a discussion at the the Biotis committee established, uh, or the report will be given to a particular actus committee, to discuss it, and government would um, make a report. Based on our report, they will reply on recommendations that they plan to adopt and the timeline to implement those recommendations. So, ultimately, mm-hmm. before the end of the year, we present a report to the and then it's in the hands of the and government.
5: Okay. Very interesting and quite historical at that. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Paul. Paul Reid, Chair of uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs Use.
3: Michael Reed on
5: LMFM. If you bought something recently, you may very well have paid for it with your phone. It's an option that would have been unthinkable five years ago, but it is commonplace now. In fact, last year, 25% of card payments were made through phones. It's a significant increase in 2021 when 8 to 10% of cashless transactions were made through people's phones. This is according to the BOI Payment Exchange. Acceptance survey of over 2,300 Irish businesses, which looks at, at how we're paying for goods, and indeed if we're going in the cashless direction. Barry Gray is BOIPA's marketing director, and he's on uh, the line. Very handy thing to do. Very popular, obviously, with those who do it, Barry, and most uh, definitely on the increase it would seem.
6: Good morning, Michael. Yes, absolutely. We've seen a We've surveyed our uh, Merchant base every year, about 2,500 SMEs at the length and breadth of the country uh, respond to these surveys. And we are seeing, over the years, a steady growth in the use of, of mobile phones and other wearables uh, to make payments. Um, it's just very convenient for uh, people now they could leave the house without their wallets, just bring their, their phone with them. And one of the other big benefits is there's no limit on Making a payment using your phone so you can tap with your phone for any amount. You could go into a garage, buy a second-hand car for thousands of euros and you could do it by just tapping your phone because all the security is is built in and it's a very effective way uh, and a growing way now that that people are choosing to make payments.
5: And apparently that's come as news to some people
6: well lots of people lots of people wouldn't be aware certainly of the that there's no limit on on the device so that's one of the things that we're uh, finding uh, about 50% of businesses aren't aware that there's actually no limit uh, for people if they use a phone or a watch uh, to make a payment so that's one of the things that we would we would like to get out there
5: okay but businesses uh, you have found through speaking to them are embracing the new technology and some many of them in fact are contemplating going cashless in the coming years
6: yeah we found again from the survey and, and this is increasing about now uh 23% of businesses nationally would like to go cashless. And I guess the reason for this, we are seeing uh, increased use of card and contactless uh, spend in the market. So just to give you some figures, card spend is, uh, is up 18% uh, 2022 over, over 21, and contactless has increased 31% over the same period. So we're continuing to see uh, more and more growth uh, in card spend, and then we're seeing some businesses, as I say, about a quarter nationally, are now saying that they would like to go cashless. And the reasons uh, they want to go cashless is um, because a few things, really, it's they, businesses think it's safer not having cash on premises. There's less administration overhead for them to do without having to go to the bank, etc., and it's also, they find it's it's generally more cost effective than having to, to manage uh, the expense of, of managing cash as well.
5: OK, I can understand the security and indeed the administration, but is it more cost effective? What about bank charges?
6: Well, you're charged for, you know, you've, you've charged no matter what way you transact Uh, You're going to be charged, but you'll tend to find that the charges for electronic transactions are lower than they would be for for cash or cheques or more manual transactions. So it would be uh, more cost effective.
5: Okay, I I am surprised by that. I thought uh, every time uh, you accepted a a payment by card, there was a, a charge on that.
6: There is a charge, yeah, but it will be. As I said, it will be lower um when uh, the the survey's been done when you when you uh, factor in the overall cost of managing and administrating cash and checks and the time and the effort and other charges that are associated with that Uh, cards are a cheaper uh, alternative for businesses.
5: Okay, as I say, that's surprising, but that's uh, what the businesses are are telling you. There will always be people who want to pay cash, uh, and I think with good reason uh, as well, Uh, do you ever envisage a completely cashless society?
6: You know, I I don't. I think there's always going to be, like, we're, we're seeing these businesses I think that want to go cashless, probably share a few characteristics i think they're, they're based in, in city centers or town locations they tend to have a higher volume of low value transactions and they know the demographic of their customers so they know their customers most of their business is already cashless and they want to just tip that over and it's not going to really negatively impact their known customer base but there's always going to be a need i think for the preservation of cash and we've seen this in in other markets that are even ahead of us like sweden and there's legislation has been brought in in some of these markets to preserve ATMs and access to cash and all of that. And indeed, where uh, the governments are looking at that here as well. So, I mm-hmm. there's draft legislation coming out this year uh, that will preserve ATMs within uh, certain geographic regions, etc. So, okay. cash won't be going anytime.
5: Mm. Well, you can't use cash, or airlines won't accept cash. Uh, some airlines, uh, at least, there are some companies uh, who don't uh, accept cash. Today, uh, any, any idea of uh, what that means?
6: Well, I think biz- businesses that don't, and and you will have seen this in some stadia as well, and I, or, or you know, there might be music festivals, but. In places or settings like that, like an airline, like a music festival or whatever, where they're not going to accept cash, generally this is very well signposted to the consumer base that will be attending, you know, that festival or if you're Ryanair, you know, they, they, they flag it very well in advance so people can be prepared.
5: Okay, interesting stuff, Barry. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Mary Gray is uh, the marketing uh, director of BOI Payment Acceptance. Michael,
3: Michael Reed
5: on, on LMFM. Now, can you imagine fixing uh, your mortgage at two and a half percent for twenty-five years today? Well, that's what a couple managed to do yesterday by court order in Tullamore. It's uh, the front page story of the Irish Independent, which says it gives hope to vulture fund mortgage prisoners. Let's speak uh, to the personal finance editor with the Irish Independent, Charlie Weston. That is unheard of in this day and age. Two and a half percent over 25 years, Charlie. How did this come about?
9: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Michael, because the rate at the moment fixed rates, the best rates are probably about 4%. And it's if- you're seeking to fix for 25 years, you certainly won't get uh, 4% or anything like it. You'll pay a hell of a lot more. What happened here was a couple uh, who couldn't pay their mortgage, they were in arrears, the negative equity as well. Um, there was a loss of income in the home. So they went to, to, to try and get their debts restructured under one of these formal court arrangements called a personal insolvency arrangement. So um, the person putting that together for them put together a scheme where there was some write-off of the value that was owed on the mortgage and, um, you know, uh, some rearrangement of their debts and essentially then proposed a 25-year fixed rate at 2.5%. Now, th- these people, their mortgages were sold to a budget fund and it's managed by Pepper. We don't quite know who own- which fund owns the mortgage, but Pepper is the legal entity handling the case, handling their mortgage and rep- represented the, the 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 vulture fund in court? Um, anyway, th- they went to, the, to to try and arrange this kind of you know set themselves on a path where they could be sustainable and pay their mortgage, get themselves back on track. Uh, but this was put to Pepper. The the personal insolvency practitioner put this proposal to Pepper, and Pepper said no way. You know, at the creditors' meeting, they vetoed it. They said we're not having this. We're not. We don't offer fixed rates. We certainly don't offer them for twenty five years uh and uh, we, we we certainly wouldn't offer a rate at two point five percent but we simply just don't offer fixed rates, they said. Uh which you know which pretty mm. people whose mortgages are trapped with future funds would know all about. So anyway, um they rejected th- th- this proposal put forward by the person insolvency practitioner. So um, it was decided by the solicitors for the, the couple, their lease based couple, to appeal this to a court, which you can do under the legislation. If if the proposal is rejected at a creditors' meeting, you can take it to a circuit court. So the case was taken to Tullamore Circuit Co- Court last Friday, and it was heard uh, last Friday morning, and the judge in the case took a long time to consider it. She, she waited until after lunch, uh, Judge Mary O'Malley Costello, and came back and decided and told Pepper, "Sorry, you are giving them a twenty-five year fixed rate at two and a half percent. Twenty-five 2.5%, year fixed rate at two and a half percent, which is really mind blowing yeah. because you, one, you can't get a rate like that anywhere yeah. in the market, yeah. uh, certainly over that period, and two, you know, uh, Pepper were absolutely insistent that they don't uh, uh, offer fixed rates that it's fundamentally unfair to them." They'd have to come up with a bespoke product if they were to offer a fixed rate. And they said the phrase they used in an affidavit from one of their senior executives was, it is practically unheard of in the Irish market uh, and fundamentally unfair to use the machinery of personal has to devised such a rate on pepper. Hmm. So they're just saying we don't uh, respectfully, I say, and believe that a 25-year fixed rates are practically unheard of uh, in the Irish market, they said. Uh, their, their senior uh, executive said in an
5: affidavit. So, well, I'd say really they were none too pleased. Uh, I mean, it really is some of a difference uh, to go uh, from charging 8 9%, as you're reporting today, uh, that pepper rate uh, to 2.5%. Uh, I think most people listening will understand the difference in, in the monthly repayments if the interest rate is 2.5% and, and if it is 9%.
9: Yeah, exactly. I mean, some people whose mortgages are trapped with with vultures. I mean, the the, bang, the mainstream banks sold mortgages to vulture funds. Uh, some of these people started on high rates already, but, but a lot of them are, are are locked into variable rates or tracker rates, and there's no option for them to move anywhere else because they have credit issues in the past. And then the likes of Pepper and the other credit services are saying, which we just don't offer you fixed rates. You're not having a fixed rate." So these people have no choice but to the pay these very high rates. So this you know this opens up the possibility that others could do something similar they go to a personal insolvency practitioner like, you know get it proven that they can't meet their bills as they fall due mm. and 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 apply for a personal insolvency arrangement and if it if it's turned down by you know the the, the fund and the credit manager uh, as in this case pepper go to court and get it pushed through so you know it really mm. opens a big open, opens up a big avenue now a new avenue for people to to kind of sort out the the situation they're in, that the, the awful situation they're in, trapped with their mortgage, uh, trapped in a voucher in fund, and being being charged extortionate rates I mean people are being charged up to 9% and they're going up all the time because as we know ECB rates are
5: going up all the time Right. uh, When I read your story in the Irish Independent uh, this morning Charlie I I sent a link on to Jimmy Crosby in RD who's been crippled by these uh, huge interest rates uh, that Pepper are charging. He had his loan transferred to to Pepper uh, from permanent
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile
0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com weightloss.
5: TSB, uh, and uh, what have fixed... Possibly at uh, around that rate uh, before it was transferred, had he had the chance or had he known what was ahead of him. Uh, but uh, he, he's arguing the point uh, that uh, he should have been given that option by Pepper, but they don't do it. Uh, and he's one uh, you would estimate of some 60,000 mortgage holders uh, who may be able to look at the ruling in Tullamore Circuit Court yesterday uh, and go to a personal insolvency agent and take a similar case.
9: Exactly, yeah. It opens up a new avenue for these people. Uh, You know, they're being pounded by very high interest rates. They can't afford to to make the payments. So they're essentially insolvent. You're insolvent if you can't meet your uh, outgoings, your your bills as they come due uh, and you know so th- there's an uh, this is an avenue for people and it's it's just an extraordinary case that um, a fixed rate was was imposed on pepper in the first place but secondly one for such a long period at mm. such a low rate so it just shows you the possibilities are out there there is some hope here for for people who are trapped with um, with vulture funds whose mortgages are managed by the likes of pepper so you know um, it, it 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 hopefully now others will kind of See, uh, look—it's not all hopeless here. We can do something. Here's here's something that could be pursued.
5: Okay, uh, and what uh, about what's owed uh, or what hasn't been paid? I presume this couple fell behind uh, on their monthly repayments. Has that been written off, or is there any case of a, a refund or or, or rebate? No, no, no—you
9: don't get you don't get a refund, Michael. Mm. But when you, you can get a, you can get excess debt that you can't pay, you can get that written off. And you get to stay in the home. And, and, you know, I haven't seen any case where somebody has done a personal insolvency arrangement where they've been torched out of their home. So, you know, it's about writing, rearranging your financial affairs so that you're back on an even keel and you can make the payments and, and setting them at a reasonable level that you can afford and still being able to afford to, to live your life. Uh, reasonable living expenses can be covered, you know. So it's all very clearly set out in the legislation. So it's a very good avenue for people. It's a good option. Uh, so it's it's something more people maybe should consider pursuing.
5: Okay, and as part of the judgment, uh, the judge in this case asked how much they had actually bought this loan for.
9: Yeah, all of the well, that was asked actually by the barrister Keith Farry, was the barrister representing the the personal insolvency practitioner and the couple. Um, and when Pepper argued in court that look, this is fundamentally unfair to us, Pepper said, uh, Pepper being the the legal representative of the, of the Vulture Fund. Uh, Keith Farry, the barrister, said, "How is it unfair? Tell us what you paid for the mortgage, and what's your funding cost? What well, you know, what, mm. what, 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 what are you paying in the market to fund this mortgage? Now that wasn't answered by Pepper, which is very significant. That's usually significant. So, you know, the suspicion is a lot of these mortgages are bought up by a bunch of funds for maybe fifty percent of their book value, and that they're funded with fixed rates, so that um, they don't necessarily have to keep passing on every single." ECB rate, rate rise to you. But we don't know that for certainly. We don't know that in this case. Mm. It's sufficient to say questions have been raised because Pepper wouldn't get into what they paid for the mortgage and what the funding cost is on it.
5: Okay. I take it uh, there's significant questions uh, that will only be answered over a period of time. For example, if the 60,000 mortgage holders who have their mortgages with Pepper or other vulture funds uh, will be able to go down the same route, uh, how the central bank, as the regulator, will respond to this uh, if uh, these vulture funds uh, will have to give people the option of switching to somebody else if they don't provide fixed-term loans or that uh, maybe uh, they'll be forced to provide fixed-term loans?
9: Well... Central banks don't seem to be terribly interested in doing anything about this. I mean, they were asked by Michael McGrath, finance minister, did they want more powers to deal with these, this very issue of mortgage prisoners? Said they didn't, uh, even though they're partly responsible, usually responsible for creating this situation in the first place because they forced all the banks here to sell non-performing loans, and many of the loans that were sold were regarded at one stage as being performing. You know, they were split mortgages. And then uh, rules were changed by the European Central Bank and the or Irish Central Bank, and they said, no, actually they're unperforming, non-performing. You have to sell them. So the Central Bank is not too bothered, um, one way or the other. This is a court-approved process, a personal solvency arrangement. Central Bank won't, the Central Bank won't get involved in that, um, and it won't force these vultures to offer people fixed rates. So this is a way of getting around all of that. It's a convoluted way of doing it, but at least it's an option for people.
5: All right. I have uh, a feeling, a sense that we're going to hear a lot more about this story today and in the coming days, weeks for that matter. Charlie, thank you indeed for joining us to tell us about uh, that exclusive story that's on the front page of uh, the Irish Independent. Uh, that's Charlie Weston, personal finance editor with uh, the Irish Independent. Now, let me go to some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. We were talking about uh, cashless society. Uh, Deirdre in touch uh, saying we have to use cash uh, and resist this, uh, I think, at all costs. Uh, Stephen Andrada has been in touch with us and he says he has a disability and he finds it very hard coping with €220 euro a week. He says by the time you pay your rent and electricity and shopping your money is completely gone. Government needs to do more now uh, and not wait for the next budget. Thanks Stephen for the that. Uh, we would Pat in Conrath in touch as well, uh, because we were talking about this 65 billion euro, and God, what on earth will you ever do with it? Uh, that's the question that uh, the government has the envious task of having to answer. Pat says, the government could invest that excess tax in harvesting Atlantic Coast wind energy, build the structures needed, and employ people to work on it. We've many industrial engineers. It's a great opportunity. We could supply our own energy needs. Not only that, but we could sell it on to the rest of Europe. I hope They don't do what they always do and sell the right to someone else uh, to do that. Thank you indeed. Uh, Tom in Navin uh, says fair play to that couple in Tullamore to bring Pepper Vulture funds to task and to court. The government uh, seems to be doing nothing. Uh, Again, fair play to that couple. I can't say uh, enough. Uh, We'd Jack in Louth in touch with us as well and he says, correct me if I'm wrong and it wouldn't be the first time, (laughs) you and me both, Jack. He says, but I I thought have you refused to accept coin or, or cash of uh, the country, you were undermining the stability of the country and were therefore committing treason and libel to prosecution by the government. Uh, thanks uh, for all your informative stories, uh, says Jack. Uh, I, I don't know Jack, uh, I mean, I think we're all familiar with uh, the term legal tender uh, and I'd have thought that yes, you have to accept money, uh, I'm guessing though, uh, and I'm not sure uh, if it's uh, because you're in no jurisdiction when you're in the air that airlines are, are, aren't accepting cash or, or how that works. But it's a very good point and thank you for making it. Uh, maybe somebody else can answer that and I'll give you the numbers now in a second. But before I do, let me read an email that came to us from an increasingly annoyed Eileen in Kells. That's how she's signed her email. She says, Michael, the food price inflation is one thing, but there's always cheaper brands available. But, she says, it's the astronomical increase in over-the-counter Medications that is just jumping by five euro every time. How can they justify this? And why is there no price control in pharmacies? She says, I really think our politicians need to tackle this price gouging of vulnerable customers. Thank you. And increasingly annoyed Eileen in uh, as you signed it. Now, if you do want to make contact with us today, let me give you those numbers. O four one nine eight three two thousand. If you want to ring us, that's O four one nine eight three two two thousand. Text or WhatsApp O eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Email Michael at LMFM.ie. Michael, michael Reed
3: on LMFM. on LMFM.
5: Now new legislation may make it possible for you to go for a pint at three, four, or five o'clock in the morning. But the sale of alcohol bill Uh, is going to lead to an increase in things like alcohol-related disease, injuries, crime, public disorder, public safety and domestic violence. That's according to a report that was published yesterday, the Sale of Alcohol Bill, an analysis of costs and benefits by Professor Emeritus Tom Barber. Uh, The The uh, document was launched by three groups the Irish Community Action on Alcohol Network, Alcohol Action Ireland and Alcohol Forum Ireland. We're joined now by Sheila Gilhini who's uh, the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland and uh, a very good morning to you Sheila and thank you indeed for joining us. Obviously you have a a lot of concerns about this legislation.
3: Yes we we do indeed and thanks very much for having me on. We do have significant concerns about it. You know we, we certainly know and all the evidence um, if you look at this internationally, which, which Professor Baber has done and you know, put forward in his report, really leads to the conclusion that if you increase the availability of, of alcohol through, for example, extended licensing hours or increased venues, numbers, or density of where you can buy uh, alcohol, well, then you see increased sales of alcohol. And with increased sales, increased use, what you find is increased harms. Um, you know, at, at our event yesterday it was so apparent actually, just one in particular, that I could really point to um, uh, a consultant in uh, emergency medicine in University uh, um, Hospital Cork, Owen Fogarty. You know, he was just saying about 30% of um, you know people who attend uh, emergency departments at the weekend is due to alcohol. And he just made such a fervent plea please don't pour more alcohol into this situation. And you know, that's what we are saying, that the sale of alcohol bill, you know, we understand and I think we certainly welcome the streamlining, you know, uh, that, that, that that this bill is supposed to be, you know, just to make it, you know, less complex in terms of, um, you know, negotiating various bits of legislation, the idea behind it was to pull it together. We've no problem with that. That makes perfect sense. What we do have a problem with is that uh, in that same bill, there was just... Um, well, let's just extend licensing hours. And what we're really saying is we need to take a step back here and really look at, um, take a systematic um, look at the health impact um, possibilities from uh, such a change in legislation. Now, there are ways of, of carrying out that systematic health impact assessment. And that was actually a recommendation of the Oireachtas Committee on Justice, which uh, did the pre-legislative scrutiny on this bill. And we're really calling for Minister Simon Harris, Minister for Justice at, at the moment, to, to, to you know, get, that, get that assessment properly done. I would say it's a very systematic way of doing it, really looking at when you make a change, what, what are the outcomes you can expect from it? What are the ways in which we're going to measure those outcomes? What, what data is going to be actually looked at? Are we going to look at, you know, the impact on policing services, on ED services, indeed on domestic violence and services that maybe that, you know, might might be needed in that, that regard? Where is the systematic analysis to really look at, at the impact of this
5: bill? OK, you said uh, Professor Baber's uh, report uh, is looking at uh, the international experience. Tell us a, a little bit more about the international experience because we are really a European outlier in terms of this, aren't we? In in that, uh, I think, uh, around-the-clock licensing uh, is commonplace in most European countries uh, and our licensing laws uh, today are seen as draconian in in terms of modern life and the way people live their lives these days. We don't all go to bed at half eleven. Some of us are only getting up to go to work at that time.
3: You know, um, certainly Professor Weber did look at that and one of the things I find very interesting, so I'll just give you a couple of examples, you know, where where he highlighted. In Amsterdam, when they extended their licensing hours, they found that actually for every extra hour of, you know, an an increase in licensing hours, that they were seeing something like about a 34% increase in the level of alcohol-related injuries. That required an ambulance to be called out. So that, you know they were, that that that's very stark. And one of the things that I find very interesting is that just very recently, only in the last few months, uh, Amsterdam is now cutting back on the availability of alcohol sales because they really are recognising this has been a problem. And it, and it is one of those things that. It's you know once you let the genie out of the bottle once you make these extensions, it is mm-hmm. harder to pull back uh you know from it and that's why I say it is so valuable to be able to learn from the experiences of you know our colleagues in Europe who have been living with you know you know further extended you know hours and so we're saying
5: let's take a step back here and look at this this legislation properly. Is Amsterdam uh, unique in that sense? I mean, is it the same situation in Rotterdam or in Berlin or anywhere else in Europe? Because, I mean, Amsterdam is a mad city. Poly drug use uh, is commonplace. People go there frequently uh, to go uh, on the lash. They're drinking a lot. They're um, smoking cannabis and Taking ecstasy and whatever else it is going. So, if you're out later, undoubtedly the problems will increase with that.
3: Well, certainly, I mean, no, Amsterdam was not a particular outlier in this case. So, so, you know, Professor Paper has pointed to, for example, in Manchester, and, you know, work that was done there. And one of the things that they found that were um, basically uh, in in England and, and Wales, there was a, a, a very widespread um, extension of, of licensing hours. In fact, actually, it was essentially available, you know, for 24 hours. And what they found there, that there was a, a, a permanent shift of uh, weekend violence into later parts of of the night so they saw something like like after an initial increase of about twenty seven percent between yeah. about three o'clock and six o'clock the rate actually increased up to thirty six percent so it isn't unique to Amsterdam and indeed you know any any study and I, I could quote more from Canberra from Queensland okay. you know there was there's quite a lot you know yeah. that the evidence is there because you know what people are actually pretty much the same the world over yeah. and uh, you know Alcohol has the same effect on people's brains, whether you're in Manchester, whether you're in Dublin, whether you're in Ireland. I'm Berlin. surprised
5: to hear about crime, though, because uh, I think one of the arguments that has always been made is that if all of the nightclubs close at two o'clock, all of the people in the nightclubs come out of the nightclubs at two o'clock uh, and they're all stocious and then end up fighting with each other. So if, if uh, you stagger that, uh, there is less prospect of trouble.
3: Well, there's no, pro- there's no proposal in the sale of alcohol bill to stagger closing hours. They just simply are extended. There's but it's that left- cut off yeah.
5: point is the point I'm making, Sheila, that if everybody has to leave at two o'clock because it's closed, uh, then everybody does leave at two o'clock. But I- if it's open all night, you'll find people leaving at different times.
3: Well, all I can do is to point to the evidence. And as I say, Manchester and, and there's several other cities in, in London where similar work was done, which found that simply it just simply shifted the problem further on into the night. And that had implications, you know, on, on policing so that you were finding policing needing to be available effectively 24 hours, you know, to be to be able to try and deal with that. There was literally no slight quiet time where, where police might might have, uh, you know, be able to take some, say, let's say, take stock of, of that. There was another study actually in Norway, which found that for every, just back to that crime thing, that for every mm. inc- every one hour increase uh, in uh, alcohol availability, that there was a sixteen percent increase um, in, in alcohol related crime. So, you know, I do really, and I really can't reiterate this enough. We need to learn from the experiences of other countries and put this into practice in our own legislation here in Ireland. Mm. Take a step back, carry out a proper health impact assessment.
5: Okay. Uh, And what about the experience in other countries that people have who visit here and arrive late at night and discover that they can't get a a drink? Uh, Is it bad for tourism?
3: I don't think we're seeing any downturn in tourism. Uh, you know, like uh, you know, the the experience certainly you know of, of tourists coming to Ireland is that they come for you know our scenery, for our activities that, that we have there. Yes, people would like to go out to, you know to have a meal, perhaps they like like to have a drink. But if you look actually at uh, the tourist board, board volumes, you know, like one of the top ten things that people actually come to Ireland for, um, actually uh, drinking alcohol is not one of them.
5: Okay, so what would you do, or what would you like the government to do? More to the point.
3: Well. I really think it is very important to carry out this health impact assessment. Clearly what we're saying is reverse the changes that are being proposed about extending licensing hours. That's that's what we, we would be calling for. What I think it is important to do is to carry out such an assessment and in particular I actually think it's very important that we start collecting data properly uh, about the impact of, of any of these changes that might be made. So we need to be systematically looking at what are the crime figures, what are the ED admissions figures, what what else is actually been there and be able to look at that properly and then you know let's make a decision uh, when when we have those facts and figures. Or if you do make changes that you're able to actually go back and look and say oh, hold a moment Mm. We, we definitely have made a mistake here
5: Okay, so you're not necessarily uh, opposed to making those changes but you expect that you will be, I take it
3: Well, what what we know from our experience and certainly from you know, we, we would be in, in contact with you know, colleagues around the world who work in, in this, this area, they are all saying don't increase your licensing hours what we are saying is to the government, you have to make a decision on this, you need proper information on which to be able to do that, not just you know the calls from uh, business and lobby groups, you know who are you know have a vested interest in you know more alcohol being sold. You really need to say l- look at each individual measure. I mean, this is actually a huge bill, just just to say that you know a, a few hundred pages, I think it's about four hundred fifty pages of, of legislation, and you know we don't we we see no evidence that the government actually took health impact into account, and you know we always say. Like the reason for licensing uh, this product, alcohol, is because it is no ordinary commodity. It's not the same as buying milk or bread, which you can do or might want to do in the middle of the night without causing harm to yourself or to, to somebody else. There is, uh, it, it is a it is a product that carries very significant risks. We have four people die every day from alcohol. That's about fifteen hundred deaths, more than fifteen hundred deaths a, a year. A third of those deaths tend to arise from what we call incident. So that's things like accidents, assaults and very unfortunately self-harm, suicide you know, that, that, that are there. And when, we, when you know that, when we have that information, why would you fuel that? Why would you increase it by making it, it more likely that, that such harm would continue and get worse?
5: Okay. Sheila, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Sheila Gilheny, CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. Uh, Some comments before the break now. One from uh, a texter who says, Michael, I paid five forty-nine for Barry's gold tea bags in 2020. That was in the supermarkets. Uh, and they went up suddenly during COVID to a massive seven fifty. Kitchen rolls as well. More importantly, toilet rolls have increased and the rolls have got smaller. We're being ripped off every day. Uh, on a, a cashless society, Patsy and Carrick wants to know, what if you ask your friend to get you something in the shops and they come back with it for you and give it to you? What do you do then if you don't have cash uh, well, I suppose you could revolute it in this day and age, Patsy. Uh, the phones are quite a- a- amazing things. I don't know. There will always be resistance to a cashless society and I think probably with good reasons uh, as we heard earlier on in the programme. But thank you indeed uh, for your comments and for getting in touch with us. Great to be hearing from you too. Our telephone number if you want to make a comment is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. Text or WhatsApp a-, a comment if you like to 658. Email michael at lmfm.com. Michael,
3: Michael Reed on, on
5: LMFM. Now to Sinn Féin TD in Meath East, Darren O'Rourke, uh, who's calling on uh, the government uh, to intervene immediately. And work with Motorcycling Ireland as well as the Alliance for Insurance Reform and Insurance Ireland to solve a problem that has led to the cancellation of the Kells Road races because they can't find affordable insurance. Good morning to you Darren O'Rourke and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I suppose we've been hearing about insurance problems for some time but events being cancelled like this. Uh, may not come as much of a surprise as they would have years ago, but it's still very bizarre, isn't
4: it? Yeah, and it's it's very disappointing, you know, um, for for Kells and for the county, and actually for the for the region, and, and certainly for for the sport itself, uh, uh, motorcycling. Um, you know, it really is a. Uh, the Kells Road races are are a big event, they're a huge draw, like there's a, a very large motorbiking community and, and group uh, that that follow uh, the race in not just, you know, in the south of Ireland but in the north and, and wider, you know, people travel far and wide including from, from abroad to, to watch the races uh, and they've been covered on, on TV and I know there's TV interest for, for this year as well. Um, uh, it's it's very disappointing to see them cancelled, and and I think it you know it does like they they bring a lot of money to the county and to the region, bed and breakfasts, uh, local accommodation, um, uh, you know pubs mm-hmm. and restaurants, and and I and I think colour and atmosphere and and diversity and uh, um, there's there's great life about about tow, about Kells and Crossacale and, and uh, the, the the north part of Mead when 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 the races are on and, and as I say you know we saw it recently there with the with the ride out Kells is the, the, the home of the largest ride out in Ireland now um, people literally travelling the length and breadth of Ireland I know from I was there with the kids um Speaking to people, um I, I travel from all over all over Ireland, as far away as Cork and and Donegal, and and huge numbers in in the north. And and I, I say we're in the middle of local elections in the north now. There wouldn't be a, a weekend go by where where we're canvassing. In the north, and people would relate to, to Kells through motorbiking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is very disappointing to, to see it. As you said, it's probably not overly surprising given um, the focus that was on insurance, and, and people would have heard uh, the challenges in the, in the north recently. Mm-hmm.
5: Um, it's a high risk right. sport, I suppose, but it, it is possible to get insurance for an event like this in the north.
4: It is, and 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 I think you know we've we've seen this as you said. There's a there's a pattern uh, within the insurance sector, and, and I have to say, you know, I'm calling on government, but government have made significant strides. Uh, my colleague, Pierre Staherty, I think was was central to some of those moves in terms of encouraging government or pushing government in that direction. But there has been very significant moves made in relation to. Um, I would say um, facilitating, accommodating the insurance industry itself, whether mm-hmm. that be in terms of judicial guidelines, whether, whether that be in terms of tackling fraud through the establishment of the Guard Insurance Fraud Coordination Office, whether it be in terms of you know high-risk adventure tourism, meeting standards in terms of robust health and safety management, yeah. whether it be in terms of, and this has to happen, the, the duty of care legislation. But I, I think there has been a, a significant... Uh, shift in policy and uh, procedure in relation to to insurance. We've seen the reduction in the number of of public liability claims and the reduction in, in the value of those claims, but we haven't seen it in terms of a comparative reduction in premiums and also we have a move mm-hmm. in the insurance industry and i think this is affecting sports like motorcycling but also a wide range of of other sectors where they're where they're taking a different approach they're mm-hmm. having this uh, uh, called micro-sectoring so they're divide- dividing the liability sector by sector by sector subdividing it to the point where a whole swathe of of sectors now uh, can't get insurance, and yeah, and motorcycling motor is, is. Don't forget,
5: don't forget that the insurance companies are rejecting their money. Um, they're refusing to take their money, uh, and I don't know. Is it possible for the government to intervene and tell the insurance company to take their money and undermine the risk if the insurance company feels that the risk is too high?
4: No, well, I think, again, going back to it, you know, we have for, I would say, a period of, of five to seven years now, uh, a light has been shone on the insurance industry here Um uh, in terms of the practices and we talked about, you know, dual pricing Pricing. we talked about um, you know, cartel-like practices were, were, were being investigated um, I think there is a real need and, and government have a role in relation to that um, to uh, further scrutinise the practices and the, the potential um, uh, the decisions that have been made within the insurance sector. So for example, Pierce Doherty has the Judicial Council Amendment Bill which would Um, bring responsibility onto the insurance industry to present to the central bank every year um, their practices in terms of passing on the the savings that have been made on the reduced claims and the reduced numbers of claims so that's something i think and we've talked about it in terms of the food sector we've talked about it in terms of the energy sector a regulator that actually ensures that there is fair competition in the in the um, in the sector but also there needs to be a recognition like we can't um Surely, have a situation where we can we have to abandon motorcycle racing. We have to abandon late night venues, um, uh, equestrian sports, children's playgrounds, um, you know, uh, uh, hot air balloons, and and mm-hmm. you know the, the whole range of activities. Juggling in our own. Mm. constituency, we, we are not a huge, the world's biggest juggling event that had to be cancelled because of, of, of insurance. Um, I think, you know, there, there is a uh, 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 fair enough uh, insurance companies have to, have to assess risk, but something different is happening now within the insurance sector. As I say, they are going into uh, micro-sectoring, subdividing sectors where before there would have been a burden sharing between insurance providers across uh, different sectors now the sectors are being exposed to the full risk themselves and you you know the 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 risk hasn't changed the risk hasn't changed over time what has changed is the practice of the insurance industry and that doesn't serve the people well um i think you know if, if that's if that's the direction that the insurance industry is going i think the state has to say well the the insurance industry isn't serving the the needs of the people and their needs be an intervention there. I think some of the intervention is about robust regulation, um, about transparency into their practices, and also that element of of board and sharing. And in fairness to the insurance industry, this this piece of legislation in relation to duty of care. If I'm in, if I'm involved mm-hmm. in a high risk activity, I go in with my eyes wide open. I assess those risks. If I participate, there needs to be at least some acceptance that that I have taken that I take on some of that risk myself. It can't all be on the insurance company or on the uh, you know the the, the, uh, the people who are providing the, the, the facility or the the event.
5: Okay, as things stand, the Cal's road races are off.
4: They're often. It's very disappointing. I think um, it, it, it behoves everybody to come to the table: the insurance industry, the motorcycling industry, uh, the government, um, to ensure that. Uh, I think there is a solution that can be found here. It should be found. It will be found by engagement. We've seen that in in other sectors. So let's engage. I'm happy to play whatever role I can pay, play as a local public representative. I'm sure others will do the exact same. Let's uh, make sure that 2024 happens.
5: Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you indeed for joining us, Darren. Darren O'Rourke Féin, TD, for me. These. Let me bring you a, a comment uh, from somebody who's asked us. Uh, not uh, to name them. It's a pretty remarkable comment. Uh, Hi, Michael Pepper. This is Pepper Finance, who we were talking about earlier on, uh, who were ordered by that court in Tullamore uh, to give mortgage holders a fixed rate of 2.5% for 25 years. A remarkable ruling. Uh, But our caller says, Pepper bought my mortgage from Ulster Bank and I haven't missed one payment in four years. Last month, they sent me an I&E, income and expenditure form, to fill in. Uh, now, this i and D form uh, includes supermarket receipts. Uh, uh, they told our caller that they should be shopping for cheaper foods in cheaper shops because they want more money on a monthly basis, even though my tracker mortgage has seriously risen this year. Plus the cost of living. There is no human side to pepper. I'm disabled. I'm raising two kids on my own. And I am a very angry LMM FM listener. Well, thank you indeed. Uh for sharing that with us. Uh, I don't know. I think that's uh, peculiar to say the least. Uh, as I say, thanks uh, for sharing that with us uh, and for making contact with us today.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM A
5: cloud hangs over the viability of Tara Mines uh, SIPTU is calling a general meeting of members who work at Tara Mines uh, in uh, the New Grange Hotel in Navan on Monday of next week. The trade union is also looking for an urgent meeting with uh, the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan. John Regan is uh, the SIPTU sector organiser and joins us now and uh, a very good morning to you John and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. The company has told the union that it is under financial pressure.
8: Yeah, look, if there's a, I suppose a bit of background on this first, Michael. Um, the, an article appeared in a national newspaper uh, a few weeks ago and um, identifying that there was a threat to 660 jobs. And We sought the meeting with the general manager and uh, we learned at that meeting that uh, yes, there is some... Uh, financial concerns um, insofar as um, the company have had to um, look for a loan from its parent company and uh, that uh, is one of the first times in all my years of dealing with Tower Mines that that sort of information was shared with us. It's not to say that they didn't have loans before but <clears throat> this time it certainly registered with us because it, we were told about it. We were also told about the difficulties around the operational side of the mine, where they are um, six months waiting for um, a license to be granted uh, for prospective um, uh, prospecting uh, out in the mine, and uh, it's taken six months. I believe only yesterday I got some information that uh, the license is about to be granted. Um, there was a process of where they had to consult with the public, uh, the um, geoscience uh, regulators, and they uh, have concluded that, and the currently the minister has the report, and uh, they're awaiting, and we're awaiting the signing off of the uh, for the license, and obviously we would be urging. Um, mm. Minister Ryan to do that immediately because it is impacting on the whole uh, operation of the mine.
5: I see from your uh, statement it's a a drilling licence, so is it that there's been no prospective drilling in the last six months?
8: Well, it's the deal with going forward, but uh, the the prospective drilling has ceased in the areas that this licence cover. Uh, Now, during that period of time, obviously, um, work has continued on and nobody has been affected by it workers are still uh, you know, on the payroll uh, th- it mainly affects uh, co- subcontractors that are in the mine uh, the likes of Priority Drilling and QME Drilling, they're the two uh, main operators of this licence mm. and uh, they've managed to keep their workers employed during that period of time but it is uh, disappointing for us that after 45 years of mining, that we have these kind of delays. And a lot of it, as far as I can gather, while we accept that they have to consult with the public and, and the public is entitled to make their submissions and feelings known... The reality is, it shouldn't take six months, particularly where you have a mine that has been repeatedly renewing licences for over 45 years.
5: Right, and obviously energy bills have gone up at Tara Mines. There's an EU fund to to support companies with their energy bills. Uh, this is an issue you're concerned about as well, though. I think in situ, 2 John, because Tara Mines doesn't qualify uh, on environmental grounds.
8: Yeah, we learned that through the meeting that uh, they have been shut out of that fund, uh, which is, again, disappointing, bearing in mind, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners and, and, and yourself will understand, that energy bills have gone hugely up everywhere, not just in businesses. But with a mine, you can imagine the sort of money we're talking about here. It wouldn't be long about bleeding into um, profits and, and, and surplus money that they may have, cash flow you know, uh, at the mine. So that money is drying up and has dried up. Hence, there is now a loan required. So, again, uh, that fund may not be appropriate. And we did share with the company um, managing director that there is another fund that could be looked at uh, around uh, just transition uh, as it is an extraction uh, company. Uh, it is uh, uh, maybe more appropriate. So the company has gone off to look at the Just Transition funding, um, which we again would be talking to the Minister as soon as we can get this meeting with him uh, to see where can assistance come from. At the end of the day, uh, this is a hugely important uh, business to the neighbouring counties of Mead and obviously Mead and the community of Navan. Uh, there's huge uh, money been spent through all the other businesses that would be impacted on if this mine uh, was in any way to be affected and not in operation. So, uh, how, actually,
5: how, how serious is it, John? How, how concerned are you? How concerned are you well, for, for, concerned. For, for the jobs and how concerned are you for the future of Tara Mines?
8: No, We're very concerned, Michael, because the, the information that was shared with us, the loan is only going to get this company... Uh, uh, staying uh, alive until uh, the end of the year. It's what's going to happen after that. You see, what's happened here is the price of z- uh, zinc uh, and um, has collapsed and the um, dollar, uh, this company trades in, in, in the US dollar and it has collapsed as well. So the finances is not what it used to be uh, because of them two elements. Now, if they sprung back and, and bounced back positively, then, uh, you know, it would be very helpful, uh, you know, in uh, in the coming months. But at the moment, it's not been predicted to bounce back.
5: So, Tara Mines is on a lifeline.
8: Well, I'm not going to use that language. I don't want to spook people into, but we will be discussing this at our general meeting and hopefully whatever we can do to assist and make sure this company uh, gets out of the difficulties that they're in. That's what we intend to do.
5: Right. And what does that mean? Rationalisation of some sort?
8: No, we're not looking at that. Uh, that's not something that the company of asses look at. It's just about efficiencies and uh, better uh, productivity. And that's the sort of area that, you know, we'll talk to uh, our members about.
5: Okay. And you're asking members to meet uh, on Monday of uh, next week. Uh, I, I take it uh, you're satisfied with the minister now that uh, that license I- is being issued.
8: Well, I'm, I'm satisfied that it's sitting on his desk, but I need it signed. And we everybody in the connected to this mine, needs it signed off and and, uh, drilling to uh, to recommence. It's a renewal of a license that has been there. So, uh, you know, Mm. it shouldn't be, uh, you know, the delays that are there should not be there as far as we are concerned. We're equally going to still press on and get this meeting with the Minister because funding has to come into this mine in some way. Uh, because uh, jobs are at risk,
5: and you're asking people to get behind Tara Mines and the Tara Mines workers. Uh, you're hoping that local uh, elected representatives will get involved.
8: Absolutely, they have a vested interest in it, the very same way as uh, everybody else. Uh, all the businesses around this mine needs to be fully functioning and making money, because it's money that comes into the communities uh, that that you know keeps everybody uh, uh, you know going. All so, right. We have to get this license, we have to get finances sorted and uh, let's see what we can do with the Minister
5: when we meet with him. Okay, John, we leave there. Thank you indeed. John Regan, SIP2, sector organiser. Uh, Before we go, one comment from somebody who says, I think I know why Ireland didn't get through to the Eurovision. Uh, The judges are are paid off uh, to keep some countries out. I don't think so. I think it's because the song was crap and it really was a brutal song and dance routine. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. (laughs) Bye-bye.